0: Revelation 2, uh, verses 1 through 7 is where we are this morning. Uh, November 1944, right in the heat of World War II, There's a young man, Joseph Matthews, a lieutenant, serving in the Army in the European theater. He was from New York, and he wrote his young wife a letter. In this letter, he, he shared some of the kinds of thoughts that young husbands like to share with their wives, especially when they've been uh, separated for quite a while. Uh, He had had also run into a mutual friend of theirs over there in Europe who was also serving in the army. He shared some news about him. And he closed his letter with these words, God is with you and I love you. And he stuck it in the mail and poor Mrs. Matthews never got the letter. It arrived at that destination in Greenwich Village, New York City in 2013. No one knows where it had been the previous 69 years, but suddenly it was there. Joseph Matthews and his wife had both passed on by then, but the young lady who lived there now took the letter, was very excited about it, tracked down the daughter of the Matthews and gave her the letter. Do you think she was excited to get a letter from her dad to her mom from 70 years before? I think, I think we can safely say yes. Now, if you knew that Jesus had written a letter to this church, 2000 years ago, would you want to know what it said? This is what we're going to be talking about for the next seven weeks. In the book of Revelation, there are seven letters to seven individual churches that really existed 2000 years ago in the place we call Turkey today. It wasn't called that back then, where Jesus tells them what he wants them to do, how he feels about them, what they're going through now, and how he wants them to respond. Now, here's what you need to understand. Here's the the kind of paradigm shift you need to make in order to understand chapters two and three of Revelation. You are not just part of a church. You are committed to serve God through that church. So that means you're responsible for what happens in that church. I know we have a tendency to think of the church the way we do a restaurant or a health club or some other organization where we join in order to get benefits, If that's your attitude about the church, then you're not getting it. That's not the way it works. You are part of a church, you join a church in order to say, God, I know I need to serve you, I know I need to be part of your body, I've decided this is the little uh, branch of your body where I wanna use my gifts, my resources, my abilities, my experiences to serve you alongside these men and women because I believe in what they believe in and I believe in where you're leading them. If you're a member of this church, when you joined, you may not have known it, but that's what you were saying. So what, what Jesus is gonna say through the Apostle John to these seven churches over the next seven weeks applies to us. We need to ask ourselves, would Jesus say those things to us? And what do we need to do as a result? Now, I preached on the whole book of Revelation five years ago in 2017. So don't get all fired up and say, oh, he's gonna do the whole book of Revelation again. I'm not, there's, more, there's too much in the Bible for me to do the same book five uh, five years later. That may come when I'm here, I don't know, 15, 30, 50 years. I don't know. Um, That was a joke. So if you want to listen to the sermons I preached five years ago, good for you. Makes me very happy. It's on our website. You're welcome to look. But we are just going to be focusing on these two chapters. Now, one mistake you make, and I said this five years ago, and I haven't changed my mind. One mistake we make when we read the book of Revelation is we read it as if God wrote it just for 2022, and so everything in there applies directly to something we just saw on the news. So, okay, oh, I just read about, okay, there's a bear in one of these chapters. Well, that must be Russia, right? That's Russia. No, no, it's China. Or, or here's, here's this big catastrophe that the Lord prophesies in this one chapter. Well, is that that event that happened over in Asia this last week or something that's gonna happen in Africa next week or something that's gonna happen here next year? Here's this big, ugly, slobbering beast. Is that my mother-in-law? I just threw that in to, uh, you know, make sure you were awake. But we need to understand that it was written to the people it was written to. And yes, it applies to us because it talks about the, the things that happen at the end of time. But first of all, it was written to specific people. A lot of people don't realize the book of Revelation is a letter It is a letter from Jesus dictated through the Apostle John to these seven churches. These seven churches that were just really beginning to experience the full weight of Roman persecution. It hadn't taken place in over 40 years. And now it was falling on them. And Jesus wanted them to understand three things. These are the three messages you need to repeat to yourself every time you read Revelation. Because they are all through it. Number one, he's saying, be ready for my return. I'm coming back and you need to be ready. Number two, be aware of the unseen things that are going on behind current events. You can't just know what is happening in the world by watching the news or by by looking at the circumstances of your life because there are things happening behind, behind the scenes in spiritual places that are more true and more lasting than what you can see with your eyes. And then number three, be encouraged. Be encouraged about my plan for the future. Even when things look dark here, we know how the story ends. No matter how dark things get in your life or in this world, the story always ends with Jesus on the throne. And with us living on a renewed earth and resurrected bodies, it is good news and there's nothing the devil can do to stop that. So keep those three things in mind, but also we're going to look at those chapters two and three at the specific things Jesus said to each one of these churches. So just to give you a little orientation, every one of the letters has certain features in common. They all start with the words, this is to the angel of the church at, the church at Ephesus, the church at Thyatira, the church at Sardis, and so forth. Who is the angel of the church? Some people think, oh, well, that means there's a guardian angel that, that watches over and defends every local congregation. That may be true. I'd love to believe that, but I don't think that's what John is talking about here. See, the word angel in Greek literally means Messenger. And remember, the book of Revelation is written in an apocalyptic format, which means it's basically written in code. And and the reason why is that because they were under persecution, Jesus wanted to ensure that, that the people then would understand what he was saying, but any enemies who got their hands on it would just see it as gibberish. Now, that's part of a problem for us because we argue and disagree on what the code means, but we agree on those three points I just made. Be ready, be, be aware, be encouraged. That's the main point. So when he says to the angel of the church, I believe he's talking to the pastor of the church. Not that I think I'm an angel, but I am the messenger that God has called here and that you've uh, given me the, the opportunity to serve as. He says to every one of those churches, he says to the angel of the church at, and then he acknowledges their situation. I know what you're going through. Here's what's what's happening in your life. I see you. Then he praises them for some aspect of their ministry. "I, I really like what I see in this area. And then he gives them a verdict. Here's what I want to say to you. Here's the message I want you to take and put into practice. And he always closes the same way. Let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, pay attention. Don't ignore this. This is the word of God. So let's see what he says to this first church in verse one of chapter two. "'To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, "'the words of him who holds the seven stars "'in his right hand, "'who walks among the seven golden lampstands, "'I know your works, your toil, "'and and your patient endurance, "'and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, "'but have tested those who call themselves apostles "'and are not, and have found them to be false. "'I know you are enduring patiently "'and bearing up for my namesake, "'and you have not grown weary.'" But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now we know the church at Ephesus because the letter to the Ephesians, that's part of our New Testament. That's written by the Apostle Paul, one of a few churches that received an actual scriptural letter from God. But not only that, the church at Ephesus was founded by Paul himself with his friends Priscilla and Aquila. After Paul was gone, Apollos came along and was the pastor. Apollos was known as the best preacher of all the apostles. I mean, one of, one of the, the great eloquent men of the first century. And then along came Timothy. That's, that's Paul's son in the faith, his protege. And then along came the apostle John. So they had a series of great pastors. They were led powerfully in their early days. They had incredible spiritual resources. And Jesus looks at them and says, you know what, after all these decades, you're still preaching the truth. I love that. You're still doing good deeds. People all around you can see what a Christian looks like. You are still remaining steadfast in the midst of persecution, and I'm proud of you for that. And most of all, I love the fact that you will not put up with unsound doctrine. There've been men who came along and claimed to be apostles, and you sniffed them out for who they were. This group called the Nicolaitans have shown up, and they've they've shared this false doctrine, and you've ignored it because you know what the truth is, and I'm thankful for that. But here's the verdict. In verse four, I have this against you because you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've lost your first love. What is he talking about? Some of you know that the Greek language had four words for love. We only have one in our language. And of all the four Greek words for love, the highest form was agape, and that's the word that Jesus uses here. Agape love had nothing to do with sentiment. It had nothing to do with how you felt about someone. Agape love was a decision. It was an act of the will. It was a choice to put that person first. He said, you've lost that. You used to have that for me. You used to be willing to do anything for me, anything that was necessary to glorify me and to reach others, but you've lost that. See, a church that's lost its first love is a church where you've got good programs, you're doctrinally sound, you've got no major scandals, but... But your primary concern is, hey, why isn't the church meeting my needs? I, I was out last Sunday. Nobody called me. I, we sang a bunch of songs today. I didn't know any of them. I, I, don't, I don't like the kinds of programs we have now. They're not the things that I want. When is the church gonna meet my needs? And why do they keep asking me to go and volunteer to reach out to these people outside the church? What do those people have to do with us? It's, it should be about us, right? That's what happens in a church that has lost its first love. Whereas a church that loves Jesus is a church that says, what do we need to do to glorify God? What can we do to make his name known in our community? What can we do? We look at all these people around us and our hearts break for the, for the brokenness in these homes and these families. What can we do to reach them and to meet their needs in the name of Christ? How can we marshal our resources and our gifts in such a way that we can change our community for His sake? Those are the kinds of things that happen in a church that hasn't lost its first love. My brother in law, uh, one of my brothers in law, is a a football coach, and he grew up in another state, so he has friends from that home state, and and they are football coaches too. They came to visit him one time, and they said, Hey, Steve, you know, we've heard all about how, how great high school football is in Texas. So uh, we're not going to be able to be here on a Friday night, but can you take us to a practice so we can see what, what they have? And, and so Steve thought to himself and he thought, well, you know, probably year after year, the, the best program in this area is, is Katy High School. I'm sorry if I hurt anybody's feelings, but they are. Uh, and, and so Steve and his buddies go to the Katy High School football practice. Now, I'll just say, I love football, but football practices are dull as dirt. There's nothing to see. There's just a few guys out there, uh, you know, half-heartedly going through drills, and the other guys who aren't going through drills at the time just sit around on their helmets, shooting the breeze, talking about girls or whatever. And this was different. These guys walk out into an atmosphere that felt like a game. So they they were broken up into two teams and they were scrimmaging and the guys on the field were hitting each other like they stole something. I mean, they were they were into it. And every time a play was made, there would be fist bumps and there would be chest bumps and there would be yelling and screaming and the kids who weren't on the field at the time were into it like like it like Their lives depended on it, yelling and screaming and encouraging their teammates. And one of the the out-of-staters walks up to him and uh, walks up to one of the players who wasn't on the the field and taps him on the shoulder pads and says, hey, son, what's going on here? What do you guys get if you win the scrimmage? Because he knew, like all kids, you have to give them some kind of carrot, right? So he's like, so do you, and the kid said, what do you mean? He said, do you get free Gatorade if you win the scrimmage? Do you, do you get to skip wind sprints at the end of the of practice today or what? What do you get? And the kid said, we get pride. And that's all he said. And then he went back to focusing on his teammates. As they left, these coaches were talking and they said, oh, this is not something we can just snap a finger and make happen. We can't just put up a bunch of signs on our billboards and, and, and hope it'll be. This is, this is a, a program of excellence. This is a culture that has invaded this whole team where if you showed up and and you were lazy or you were selfish, you wouldn't fit in and you would quit because you just wouldn't be part of the group. And some of you know what that's like. Maybe you played sports and you were part of that kind of team. Most of us who played sports never were. Maybe you are a musician and you've been in a band or an orchestra that that had that culture of excellence where everybody was striving for what was perfect, what was was awesome, what was great. Maybe you've even worked in a company like that. But imagine a church like that. Imagine a church that was just pervaded with with a culture of excellence where everyone knew you gave your all for Christ or you just didn't fit in. And I'm not talking about legalism here. Some of you have grown up in legalistic churches. I'm not talking about a church where I show up and, and say, okay, you, you daydream during the sermon, drop and give me 20. I'm not talking about the kind of place where if you make a mistake, we, we all shoot you and leave you behind. I'm talking about a place where we just expect good things to happen because we're into it for Christ. And we see his power in our presence all the time. And on that rare Sunday where we don't see someone saved or where we don't see four people baptized like we did today, or we don't hear some testimony of some amazing thing that God is doing, on that rare Sunday, when that doesn't happen, we walk away saying, oh, we need to pray double this week because we don't want that to be a trend. That's what I'm talking about. And I don't, know, I don't know if Jesus would give us the same verdict. I don't know if he'd say, you, First Baptist Conroe, have lost your first love, but I do wish we were that kind of church that I just described. And if you don't, what's wrong with you? And I mean that in love. What's wrong with you? So how do we get there? How do we see that happen? Let's look again at the instructions that Jesus gave the Ephesians in verse five. Three things. Number one, he says, remember, remember from where you have fallen. he's not talking about nostalgia here. And I know in this service, we've got a lot of young people, but there's also some folks that have been in this church a while. I'm not trying to out anybody or embarrass anybody, but I want you to raise your hand if you've been in this church more than five years. Okay, keep them up if it's been more than 10. How about 15? How about 20? How about more than that? okay. We've got some people who've been in this church a while and they can tell some stories. The rest of you who are newer, listen when these people speak. Because they will tell you stories of when this family got saved, or when this family was transformed because the dad got saved, or the mom got saved, or one of the teenagers got saved. And they'll tell you the stories about when that person, who when I met them was, was no good at all and, and just didn't care about anything but himself, and then not only came to know Christ, but grew into such a disciple, he had like a, a train of people who came to Christ because of him. And this woman who, who came into us and w- was so timid, she was like a mouse, and then she became someone who who started churches and served God overseas and was an inspiration to us all, they will tell stories of lives changed in this church's history. This church has been here 130 years. You don't think God's done some amazing amazing things over the course of that history? So remember that. Keep that history alive. But not only that, think about your own life. Has there been a time when you were more into the word of God than you are now? Has there been a time when you got more out of Sunday morning? When, when you came expecting something good to happen, and it did. Was there a time when you were more excited to tell others about what God had done for you? Think back, think back to those days and ask yourself, what has changed? What needs to happen to get back there? Number two, repent. Repentance is a huge concept in Christianity. It doesn't get talked about often enough. When when Mark in Mark chapter 1 is describing the message of Jesus Christ, he simply says repent and believe the gospel. That's what it is. It's repentance. Without repentance there's no salvation. What is repentance? Okay, I've been using that word. It's not feeling sorry for your sins. Repentance is a sorrow that drives you to the point where you say something has to change. If I've gotta cut off my hand, if I've gotta gouge out my eye, if I've gotta change everything in my life to not go down that road again, I will do it. That's repentance. And I got news for you. Most of you, I hope, already know this, but maybe some of you don't. Christianity, the way you are saved, is not by saying, okay, I can believe those doctrines. Okay, I can do those rituals. That's not how you get saved. The baptisms we saw this morning, Those young people weren't getting saved this morning. They were being baptized because they got saved. Hope you understand that. Nothing magical about that water. That's pure overpriced Conroe water, okay? (laughs) But it's a beautiful symbol that this person was dying. Now, buried, risen with Christ, there's someone brand new. How did that happen? That happened because there came a point in their life for some of these people very recently where they said, Lord, I can't do this. I've tried and I'm failing and I know it's not gonna get any better. I need you to change me. I need you to to, just take me and and rescue me and forgive me and make me a new person and enable me not to run down that road anymore. That's repentance. And, And I got news for you because most of you know that, but some of you don't know this next part. The way to be a good Christian is not simply to follow all the rules because you can follow all the rules and be a terrible Christian. The way to be a good Christian, the way to grow in Christ and be a disciple is to live a consistently repentant life where you always have a list of things you're repenting of, a list of, I could, I could share my list with you if you wanted, I'm not going to, but I could, of the list of things where I'm constantly praying, Lord, here's where I know I need growth. Here's where I know I need change. Here's where I, here's where I keep messing up, so change me. That needs to be your constant prayer. That's how you become the person God created you to be. Because if you're not constantly repentant, you know what you become? You become exactly the kind of religious person that makes people out there hate religious people and think the Bible and God are not for them. Repentance. The Ephesians were like that. Doctrinally sound, morally upright. Great programs, so much about them that was on paper just the way it should be, and yet they were so self-satisfied. Jesus said, you need to recognize the the moral rot inside of you that has caused you to, to abandon me to still keep doing all the outward stuff, but not really serve me. You need to admit how far you've fallen or you'll never come back to me. And you know, when you study church history, and this is something that's not taught often enough, every once in a while in church history, you see these movements, these great revivals. It'll break out in a certain state or a certain nation. And all of a sudden, the the Holy Spirit will just... Explode the gospel and you'll see churches popping up and and old churches revived. And you know how that starts? It starts with mass repentance. Every time, it's you're going to church and it's the same old thing every Sunday and then one Sunday, a guy that you thought was the the chief of all Christians gets up and says, I just have to confess to you that every Sunday I put on my Sunday best and pretend to be good and the truth is I'm the sorriest husband and father in this room. I've I've neglected my wife and, and I've been mean to my kids and I need for some of you godly men to take me under your wing and mentor me and pray for me so I can be the man that I need to be. And then somebody else gets up and says, I know I know I pretend to be this great person, but I've got all this bitterness in my heart against people that have hurt me in the past, and I've got to let go of that. So y'all pray for me. And somebody else gets up and says, I'm a deacon in this church. I teach Sunday school in this church. I, I lead worship in this church, but I've never actually accepted Jesus as my savior. And I'm, I'm, I'm doing that today. And man, when you see people like, like that, get up and say, now I'm turning my life over to the Lord. It, it's a ripple effect. It changes whole communities. And I say all that to say this, in just a little while, I'm going to ask you if you have something you want to repent of, not trying to manipulate anybody. Not trying to not trying to make something happen, but I want to give the opportunity. If anybody says, I, I need to repent today, maybe for the first time, or maybe I've just been a hypocrite for a long time and I need to I need to just confess before God and my church family. If you do that, or if you do it some other day before your life group, if you do it publicly, you're not only doing the right thing before God, you are causing something. You are creating an opportunity for something that could cause a ripple effect that changes our whole church. And one church revived can change a whole community. And one community where the Holy Spirit gets loose can change a whole nation. So it's not just about you. Remember and repent. And number three, number three, repeat. Now, I don't always do this. I'm not, a, I'm not a big alliterative person where every point has the same first letter. That's an Adrian Rogers thing, and I am not Adrian Rogers. I recognize that. It just happened to work out this way. It's kind of beautiful when it does. Jesus says, remember, repent, and repeat. When he says repeat, what he's saying is, do the works you did at first. Guys, I gotta say this. This is not about, oh, well, you know, back in the day when I was growing up, we used to do it this way. We used to have church on Sunday nights at six o'clock. We used to preach out of the King James Bible. We used to sing out of the 1957 Baptist hymnal. And all those things are great. That's how I grew up. But none of those things existed in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, go back to the time when you used to come and gather together, not to satisfy yourself, but to praise me. Go back to the time when you used to open my word every day and sincerely looking for me to speak to you on that day, in that particular purpose, in that particular time. Go back to the day when every person you knew, you looked at them and you said, I am, you're in my life because God put you there for me to love you. And if you don't know Jesus, my job is to make him real to you. Go back to that day when you used to do those things. And you say, well, but what if I don't feel like it? Here's what you need to understand. I said it earlier. It's not about how you feel. Jesus doesn't say, you never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips and there's no tenderness anymore in your fingertips. I know that's creepy, but he's not saying you've lost that loving feeling, okay? That's where I'm going with this. Aren't you glad I didn't sing? He says, you don't, you're not doing the things you used to do. See, Carrie and I had been married 30 years because we got married when we were two. And <laughs> in those 30 years, we've learned a lot. We got married, we were madly in love. And then we got married and we were like, being madly in love counts for about that much. Because there were days, especially that first year, where we looked at each other and thought, You're still here? I was really hoping that was gonna change. And so early in marriage, we, at a very young age, had to decide, maybe it's not about how I feel about you. Maybe it's about me choosing to put you ahead of me, put us ahead of what I'm feeling. And she was better at that than I was, and probably still is, and I thank God that I married somebody of maturity and wisdom because I saw in her, you know, I know she doesn't like me now and yet she's treating me like she loves me. And that made all the difference. Because I've learned in marriage that when I, when I just choose, I, I just know because we've been together long enough, I know that if I do this, it's going to make her day better. If I do that often enough, not only is it going to make us stronger, I'm going to love her more. It's, it's weird how the action starts and then the emotion follows after. But if instead you, as a Christian, and the same thing is true in your walk with the Lord as it is in marriage, if you, as a Christian, say, Yeah, one of these days, I'm just, all this love is going to well up within me and I'm going to serve the Lord, it's never going to happen. You start serving him. And one day you wake up and you realize, Good grief, I love him more than I've ever loved anything in my life. Where did that come from? It came because you chose. You chose to serve. And if you think, okay, well, that's not very fair, think about it. 2,000 years ago, God became a man named Jesus, died on a cross for you. Why did he do that? Did he do it because you're just so doggone lovable? No, I mean, don't get me wrong. God has fond feelings for you and I do too. But it wasn't because of that. God chose. He made a conscious decision. He looked at you and he looked at me and he said, I know where this road leads and I can't let them go down that road without me intervening. if it means my life for theirs, then it's worth it to me. He made that decision. He made that decision for you. That is love. Greater love has no one than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. And that's why we can do the same today. Why we can say, Lord, I I remember what you've done in my life in the past. I want to repent of the ways I'm going against you today. And I want to repeat the things I did at first.